Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Ruskin. I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action, and welcome to sunny Wisconsin. We, however, all remain safer at home, which, which means our panelist, Claire Zalke, our healthcare director, is from her home. Claire, good to have you this morning. Thank you. Really good to be here. Good to see you. Yes, yes, it is. It's actually nice to see the sun. We've had a ton of rain, and I'm sure a lot of folks are going to hopefully enjoy it safely over the next few days. Uh, but also, we must introduce Robert Craig, our executive director here at Citizen Action. Um, Robert, uh, good morning. Good day, everyone. We have to, as always, we have uh, a lot of updates around what's happening in the state and nationally around COVID-19 that we're definitely going to talk about and spend a lot of time uh, discussing here on the podcast. We're also going to talk a little bit later in the show about uh, the growing importance of uh, progressive talk radio. But folks, let's, um, panel, I want to dive right into uh, COVID-19 and where we're at. Um, so last week when we recorded, it was just shortly after the Supreme Court uh, had ruled and we basically were sent into uh, what Governor Evers properly described as a lot of chaos. Um, and this uh, this appears to continue here in Wisconsin, and we're going to talk more about what has really become a patchwork of different policies that is uh, quite confusing. Uh, but before we do that, I want us to start out the show by talking about um, some new research that uh, just came out that talks about the absolute and critical importance of social distancing. Uh, the, the research demonstrated and uh, showed that uh, so the social distancing sooner uh, could have saved tens of thousands of lives um, and by extension, obviously, demonstrates the importance of social distancing, particularly given the lack of a vaccine to a strategy uh, to try and deal with this. Uh, Claire, I wanted to get your comments to this, uh, this new study because obviously this is central. I know what you think is critical, but what we broadly here at Citizen Action really think is vital, and that is social distancing and uh, being very smart about how we uh, we go forward. This, this feels like a little bit of um, a deja vu of conversations that we had right at the beginning of uh, the pandemic in early March when um, when we in the advocacy community, certainly in the health advocacy communities that I uh, that I move in and my role at, um, as a healthcare director at in Action, um, we're saying all of all of these things, right? We were saying, you know, look at all of these these models that show that this virus spreads um, exponentially, um, that it that it uh, every person if if left unchecked who infected will spread the the disease to more than just one other person um and and that's why that that growth curve is um is so steep um and and look and look at how um you know because of that the the earlier we start um the, the more lives we'll save um with the social distancing um and, and so to see that now have played out in real time and to have all of these um, scientists who were tracking um, the disease basically show that our analysis was was accurate at the front end um, is 
you know, it's cold comfort, right? It's, it's not comforting to, to be proven right when tens of thousands of people have died. Um, it's, it's kind of more like a, a punch in the gut. Um, and it's especially hard because in, in places, there are places in Wisconsin where maybe this virus would have, have never spread if, if we had all gone on um, safer at home, if we'd all started social distancing much, much earlier, right? Because um, you know, maybe there are more rural communities, communities where, um, you know, people don't travel as often as large urban areas that, that could have been protected. Um, but the other thing I'll say is that um, there's a lesson to be learned from this. And um, I think that lesson is that the more we commit to social distancing, the more lives we'll save. Um, and that's not true only on the front end, but I think that's also true on, on the back end, right? So now that we're talking about lifting safer at home orders and we're talking about reopening the economy um, and um, just as we could have saved lives by um, starting social distancing earlier, I think we will almost certainly save lives by um, maintaining it for longer. Um, and I'll give other folks a comment, but uh, but that's my that's my tantalizing plug to talk about our um, state and local advocacy around this issue. Yeah, I wanted to before I kick it to Robert, just quickly uh, to give folks a clear idea what the study did find. If we had started social distancing only one week earlier, we're not talking about a huge amount of time. 36,000 fewer people could have died. And just a reminder, we're, we're over 90,000 um, as of today. So that is a significant number of folks. And I think even if you went to two weeks, it got over 50 some percent uh, less uh, casualties. Robert? We know that social distancing works uh, because this is a highly contagious virus that uh, mostly spreads person to person. And so contact, like direct contact, sneezing on someone, coughing or talking loud, or even being in the room too long with someone positive, will tend to infect people. And so if we had acted much earlier uh, in, in, and gotten testing up dramatically and contact tracing, we didn't, wouldn't have needed as long a blanket shutdown. By the way, our shutdown was less blanket than many other countries, but it's still much more effective to do some kind of shutdown than not. That had huge economic ramifications. But yeah, we'd started one week earlier. We would have saved, according to the national study, uh, 36,000 lives. That's at the national level. And so it varies state by state based on the progress of the, of the virus. But now we cannot afford to be shut down for 18 months. And that is the minimum trajectory here for a vaccine. And that would be like a record for a vaccine. Uh, we obviously have to start going back at some level, but we're going to have another resurgence if we do not have a system for, con for, for massive testing, contact tracing, and virus surveillance. Because the point there is to isolate where the outbreak is and separate those folks so they don't infect other folks. So it's a way not to have to simply shut down the whole economy and do blanket social distancing. And so what's not understood, say, by the Trump administration, clearly, because they willfully want to understand it, is they want to open up the economy. They should put massive amounts of money into uh, testing, contact tracing, and uh, virus uh, surveillance. That is, being able to use all the evidence from contact tracing to find out exactly not only where the risk 
uh, factors are, but to immediately respond. And one thing that concerns me, we can get into uh, later if you want that, is, is that there, a number that a lot of other governments are using, the reproduction rate, that is, how many positive, uh, how many additional people does on average each positive person infect, is not, does not seem to be reported in Wisconsin or nationally. It's unclear whether it's being collected. Uh, we're actually trying to find out from the Department of Health Services. Uh, but Germany literally has a system under Angela Merkel where if it goes beyond 1.1%, 1.1 people per one person who is infected, then they will start partial targeted shutdowns, just very targeted based on where the outbreak is so that you don't have to do a big blanket shutdown. And we don't seem to be anywhere near having that in place, though I'm impressed that Tony Evers took as much money as he did from the first relief package and put it in the right place. Well, Robert, I wanted to, before we go to Claire and start talking about what's happening now, county by county, I wanted to get your, and then Claire, you're obviously uh, welcome to comment. What what are your thoughts on uh, Governor Evers? Uh, A billion dollars of, of this money being put towards uh, the testing and tracing, which we have talked about, uh, is critical. I think that it's absolutely the right thing to do. The scary part is, is that Congress is gridlocked, so there may be no more money other than the CARES Act money. And so he's right to dedicate it to testing and contract tracing and supporting local efforts to do both of those things. Uh, there's a risk that uh, Donald Trump is going to pull the National Guard Uh, The reason he was going to do it is because with the June 24th deadline is because uh, June 25th is when they all the National Guard's folks would qualify for a huge extra payment for an over 90 day deployment. So he was doing it for financial reasons. But he and by the way, they have to stop even earlier because they need two weeks of uh, quarantine after doing this kind of work. So it'd be more like er like like early June. He's now talking about extending through July, which really means if it's the end of July, mid-July, because of the two-week quarantine, that helps. But frankly, the federal government needs to put everything in, the National Guard, and use its much greater revenue sources. Uh, In fact, Governor Evers is doing everything he can. The legislature should be doubling this amount, because from what I can tell based on the national metrics, where he is rapidly increasing contact tracing capacity and testing capacity based on his resources, Governor Evers' administration is, but it's still not up to the numbers you would need to develop the system that is state-of-the-art like you see in Germany and other countries that have been far more advanced. With that, though, we're going to have to take a break. But when we come back, Claire, we're going to go to you and we're going to have a conversation about what our reality is here in Wisconsin uh, and that we have a patchwork of uh, different uh, policies. And so, Claire, I know you've been putting a lot of time. We'll talk more about that on the back end of these messages. We'll listen to Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. Again, we're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Now, before we took a break, Claire, we were going to go to you and start to talk about the reality here in Wisconsin that we have a patchwork of different policies in different communities. Literally, you could walk across the street and uh, find yourself in a very different uh, response to COVID-19. Uh, T- t- tell us more about this and what uh, what we're doing to, doing about it. Yeah, this is a real uh, this is a real challenge. Uh, I, I think not only for our state being able to um, 
get through this pandemic as safely as possible, but I think also for regular folks to understand what is and is not open and what is and is not allowed right now. Um, so what we are trying to do um, is in uh, in the community um, create sort of a social mandate for um, these physical distancing best practices and to, to try to create a culture around it um, that is uh, that has demonstrated support for members in the community. Um, and we're trying to have, uh, we're trying to encourage local and particularly uh, county officials who have authority from the state to implement uh, their own safer at home orders to, um, like I said, at minimum, create within their own communities, within their own counties, this um, sort of uh, social sense of obligation to stay home um, and, and in that way keep us safer and then also to the extent legally possible um, still try to um, keep closed places where folks might gather and uh, spread the diseases so uh, you know non-essential businesses um, um, you know some some parks maybe where where folks might play large uh, you know large games and things like that um, so, so we're trying to encourage local governments to use all of the powers that they have uh, to, to protect our safety and, and the components of safer at home that are the most effective in um, practicing safe distancing for folks. So be on the lookout if you are a member of uh, the Citizen Action of Wisconsin Organizing Cooperatives, um, if you are on our email list. Um, Keep, keep an eye out for some local advocacy opportunities that are coming up. Um, and the other thing, Matt, I thought maybe I would punch back to you to see if you wanted to talk about um, is the fact that we really need to be calling on the legislature to, to come back in and do their job. Now, I know that, um, you know, Governor Ebert has said that he's not going to pursue this rulemaking opportunity because um, that the Supreme Court um, basically said if you want to extend safer at home, you got to do um, because he just knows that the legislature uh, is not interested in taking up this process. Right. Um, yeah. But we but we are part of government. Right. We're the agitators and the advocates on the outside. We're the ones who got to hold the legislature accountable to, to do their flipping job. Well, absolutely. And the same way we want to try to support and, and get county and local officials to do the right thing, we think the legislature is the one who is the major culprit in, in this situation. The reality is uh, the, it, the fact that we even had a Supreme Court ruling was because of the legislature. The legislature said that they wanted to be a part of making a plan with the governor. The reality is there is no plan here in the state, and the legislature is completely just abrogated its responsibilities. And the reality is it's up to us to put pressure on them. And if, look, we're opening up, the state is starting to open up. And if we're going to open up, we need everybody to have Badger Care. We need to be able to open that up to everyone without insurance. And quite frankly, the other thing, and we need to be contacting the legislature about this, is everyone should be able to have access to, to Badger Care who, who doesn't have insurance. And we need to require insurance companies to provide free COVID-19 testing and treatment. It's great that we have these spots, right? But the treatment part is absolutely critical. Robert, I want to get uh, a ticket to you to underscore this. Uh, we have been encouraging folks to call. We've been getting people to call legislators' office. And uh, we're going to be also having uh, uh, volunteers and folks phoning uh, 
other other people to finally make this push uh, for for Badger Care and for this free testing and treatment, Robert. Yeah, there are reasons to have that. Regardless, we fight for healthcare as a right all the time, pre-pandemic, post-pandemic. But what we're going to run into here, and we already are running into, is that if you if the only way to be safe is to have a massive testing program and treatment program and to be able to isolate cases and isolate places where they're breaking out, like nursing homes and meat planting plants, prisons, any business where it's happening, or any group of people who are connected to each other can occur within a family network that is connected to each other, uh, is if people are, are that if people who have symptoms can easily get testing and uh, will do it, and people without symptoms, because we think as many as uh, as much as 43 percent of um, people who uh, who infected another don't have symptoms, and that the most infectious is right before you show symptoms if you're going to, like the, the couple of days before. And so right now we're not giving tests to people. We're not giving tests to people who have tons of symptoms that aren't the right symptoms, when in fact we know that often if you have a pre-existing condition, your pre-existing condition, standard condition symptoms are masking the COVID symptoms, okay? So they, they well could because they interact. We know that. That's why people with very, a number of pre-existing conditions are at highest risk. And here's the problem. According to our research, we did a survey in early March. Nearly 50% of Wisconsinites have avoided needed medical care and services in the last year because of fear of the cost. And a national study says 69% uh, would consider uh, whether the, whether with the cost to themselves, out-of-pocket costs, uh, in seeking a test. Or, and, of course, you seek a test and you're positive, then you have to have treatment, right? So it's really together. And even if they have symptoms, they would think twice if it was a high out-of-pocket cost. We know most people can't afford a $400 surprise bill. We know that a $400 surprise bill is a lowball bill for interacting with our for-profit, highly expensive healthcare system. And so the way our healthcare system is structured, Matt, is an extreme barrier to ever containing this virus. And we have to move forward. Uh, we could do it at state level by expanding Badger Care dramatically and, and putting serious mandates on insurance companies, out-of-pocket costs, and they're already evading the free testing requirements that are in federal and state law. And so you have to enforce them because this is the insurance company model and you have to enforce it on all the medical providers that like to, to do balanced billing, which is surprise medical bills to you beyond what your insurance covers. And so we need to do that. And the most comprehensive thing is the federal bill, Matt, that Pramila Jayapal has introduced in the House and Bernie Sanders is doing a version in the Senate. It was uh, the Jayapal bill was introduced today. Uh, today, that is when, uh, yesterday, the day before we record on Thursday, so on Wednesday. And that is uh, literally providing Medicare with no co-pays or deductibles to every uninsured people and covering people's cost sharing for all COVID testing and treatment on top of their private insurance. So providing universal free testing and treatment through the Medicare system during the pandemic. That would do it. Yeah, well, look, um, I love Pramila Jayapal, by the way. I'm just going to say that. She seems to be attached to almost everything good and positive in, in Congress. Um, there's actually one other thing I'm just going to quickly point out that I saw this uh, week Mark Procan was pushing uh, that I do think is also important in this broader context. Uh, we have to look federally. It's an opportunity to look at how we spend our resources. And if we don't seriously start to address the 
the uh, military spending at this time and look at that as we're um, figuring out how we move forward in this time of COVID, we're crazy. And uh, I want to shout out to Mark Pocan. Prabilla was also on that bill. Uh, but I believe it was like 29 Democrats who basically said we need to go after and start to reduce the amount of military spending in order to make sure that we can take care of these critical needs, both health and economically related to our country. And um, just want to say that those are also the kind of progressive, forward-sighted solutions that we uh, desperately need at a time like this. Uh, Robert, and we can dig this. into this at a future podcast, but uh, our colleague that Matt knows, uh, Tobita Chow from People's Action, did a briefing for a strategy group in People's Action, our national, one of our national networks yesterday, about how the revving up of anti-China feeling and xenophobia on both the Democratic and Republican side is actually a desire by the military-industrial complex to create a new Cold War so they can defend military spending and increase it. And so literally, we have a threat, real threat here that that both parties will careen into a Cold War, at, at, and it could be worse than a Cold War if Trump is reelected. So you're right about the military spending, but uh, the military-industrial complex and all of the hawks on both in both parties have a plan for that that we have to address, and it's othering and xenophobia and blaming China for everything and revving up tensions. Well, and with that, we're getting close to a break. So uh, we are going to, uh, well, first of all, we want to thank all of the uh, the radio stations and other media outlets that uh, broadcast the Battleground Wisconsin. Uh, and later in the show, we're going to talk more about that, and in particular, uh, one particular radio station. But with that, though, we are going to take a break. Uh, you're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. Again, we're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. And uh, we want to encourage you to consider becoming a member of our organizing cooperatives and we'll have a link to that on our website where you could go join and sign up and get involved in creating uh, creating the Wisconsin we all want. Again, we're the Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. For Citizen Action, you can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Um, we mentioned earlier in the show, I believe, that, um, well, if we didn't, we're, we're going to mention it now. Uh, generally, this time as we record every week, the new unemployment numbers have come out and there were 2.4 million uh, unemployment uh, uh, people who filed for the first time last week. So we're, we're already uh, pushing 39 million since the uh, COVID crisis. And uh, unique about a lot of these new numbers is uh, a lot of the folks that are applying now are people who are not traditionally allowed to get unemployment. We're seeing a lot more of them getting processed. But the reason I bring this up is um, this is all, you know, really, really fundamentally important, this critical economic situation. And uh, we have the Republicans uh, nationally, and we saw this in the state as it related to trying to protect nursing homes and liability around medical care. We're seeing, and Robert, I want you to talk more about this, that uh, Mitch McConnell and a number of the Republican leaders are saying that, first of all, if they even do any more federal assistance, which we desperately need for our state and municipalities, that they're going to tie any additional relief uh, to, to basically uh, protecting uh, all employers from any kind of legal liability that they might have for forcing and pushing people back to work. Robert? Right. So we have, it's not 
just local governments, right? What they did for average people was inadequate to their to the depression-like conditions, and this uh, economic hardship will continue another 18 months. So it's what they did is running out for everyone but the largest corporations, and so this is conservative governance. They don't want to take any more action, right? All of a sudden. Uh, and, but they're saying that if they ever do, so they're saying the Heroes Act passed by the House of Representatives, the latest relief bill, is dead on arrival in the U.S. Senate. But they are further saying that anything they ever agree to must include sweeping liability protection so, for employers. So understand what that means. The Trump administration has gutted the CDC and the CDC guidelines to make sure there are no strict rules as to what a safe workplace looks like in a pandemic. But they're aware, of course, that in our system of, of, of law, going way back hundreds of years to England, that you can be sued for such negligence. And so then say so desperate to open the economy, safe or unsafe, and quite frankly, it's unsafe. Uh, they want to make sure that employers are totally exempted. So they will have no authority, no accountability. There, be, there won't be federal regulations that are clear. There won't be federal enforcement. And they won't even be liable because they know that some companies will not reopen because it's not safe to reopen and they'll be afraid of lawsuits, as they should be. So lawsuits, they're not just, you know, crazy lawsuits with ridiculous juries, not at all. They're an accountability check on big corporations. So the meat placking plants, for example, will not have safe work environments unless they're either regulated by government or they are so fearful of losing more than they're going to gain through lawsuits that they are forced to do the right things and socially distance their employees, stagger the shifts, give them adequate PPE, adequate testing, et cetera. And you can apply this to varying degrees of risk to every kind of business. But the Trump administration has decided, quite frankly, that we don't care what the consequences are. We're going to lie about the consequences, get the economy going, hope it's good enough to reelect Trump. And by the way, the only thing that would really do it is if he actually did an effective response. And so it shows an ideology and a group of interests, because there are big corporate interests behind this, uh, that put together, which is dangerous and which can't govern any time, let alone in a pandemic. So right-wing conservatism, the current variant is a as in, as as uh, Trump and McConnell reflect as symptoms, they're just one pe per, one person. It's not like McConnell goes away and everything's fine. Shows you how bad the system is and how desperately in need of reform it is. With that, I want to slightly change topics. It's still how are we responding to core functions of our democracy in this pandemic, and I, so I want to talk about elections. Um, I'm assuming, right, we all voted uh, absentee, Claire, Robert, we, did you all vote ab voted absentee in the, uh, the, the April election? Oh, you betcha. <laughs> yeah, well, because it's smart, it's safe. And, uh, and, and the reality is we just talked about the science behind it. The social distancing is critical. And so one of the things that is really ramping up this week and we want to talk more about is how can we make fundamental changes, start to make changes in our election system here in Wisconsin, but also nationally to respond to COVID-19, to make sure that folks have uh, ability to vote safely uh, and to make sure that there are plenty of different kinds of options for people to be able uh, to vote so that we can still have uh, extraordinarily high voter turnout in a critical election. And so 
Uh, this week, um, uh, uh, the Wisconsin Election Commission uh, met yesterday on Wednesday to discuss the idea that they would uh, send out absentee ballot applications uh, to about 2.7 million uh, registered voters here in Wisconsin. Um, and this is something, obviously, that we at Citizen Action would, would very much support. Uh, there's a lot of dickering over the details and who will be included, but there is definitely a move afoot here to expand and change voting here in Wisconsin. Claire, I know from a health perspective, this is absolutely critical uh, that we look at, uh, at other opportunities this fall. Your thoughts? From a health perspective, that's absolutely right. And I feel like there's not a whole lot that I need to say about that that I haven't said um, or that any of us haven't said um, on previous podcasts when we talked about the April and the um, special congressional this um, election in the northern part of uh, the state, right, which is that there's just no way there's no way to make it safe. There's no way to make in-person or, or widespread in-person um, voting 100% as safe as um, voting from home by mail. Um, there's always going to be people who are going to vote at the same time. Um, people are going to be standing in line with each other. It's hard to maintain physical distance when you're waiting in line. And, and even then, you can't control, you know, the wind that can carry the you know, the droplets from a sneeze or a cough um, to other folks that are in line. Um, you know, we know that surface contact is, is not generally um, how this is spread, but it's possible. Um, so, you know, when folks touch ballots and touch pens and whatnot, um, it's possible to spread the illness. And um, we know that this is true because they tied, a, you know, a couple dozen cases of new cases um, and their subsequent um, a spread to the April election, um, it, you know, from a health perspective, um, it's a no-brainer. Um, but what I think is more interesting to talk about, and I think that, you know, where we could take this discussion is, um, I would say, you know, first, the fact that this could be, um, you know, good for, for democracy, that this is a, a viable opportunity to expand voting in Wisconsin to folks who um, have actually experienced increased um, disenfranchisement in recent years by actions of um, current and former elected leaders of the state, um, and that it, it could be even financially um, viable long-term, as we're seeing um, has happened in the handful of states that have um, massively expanded uh, absentee vote by mail. Um, and then I think it would be interesting to talk a little bit about um, President Trump's response to um, a couple other states that have proposed this. I know I threw a lot at you, but I think it's a really interesting subject. Yeah, no, Claire, that is actually very appropriate uh, to uh, talk about Trump, because it is the broader soup with, with, in which all of this is occurring. And uh, the reality is Trump was just completely unfactual, tried to make it sound as if absentee ballots were being mailed to people, dead people, all this nonsense, when all the state was doing was mailing absentee ballot applications, which is exactly what our Wisconsin Election Commission, uh, both the Republicans and the Democrats on the Election Commission are talking about doing. There's some dis disagreement about the details of what that would look like. So Trump is just, it's just showing how whacked out 
he is on this issue and really trying to demagogue on it. Uh, but the reality is early voting and vote by mail, that started in Oregon and that was started by Republicans. It was a Republican effort. This is not a partisan issue. This is actually an issue, as you talked about, it is a public health issue and a small d democracy issue uh, that we need to continue to push forward on. Um, I do want to point out before we go to break, and when we come back, Robert, I'll give you an opportunity to respond. But there's also, um, there, you know, there could be some legislative efforts uh, around this, but I also want to dive into the reality that uh, our elections are, they're implemented at the municipal level. And so really what we need to do also, in addition to whatever the feds in the state uh, do, is work at our municipal level to expand early voting options, to expand drop boxes, to expand curbside, other opportunities for people to vote safely uh, where their ballot could be sent to their home, but then they can determine for themselves how they want that ballot to be cast. What could be more democratic than that? But that's gonna require municipalities uh, to potentially use some of the resources that may be available uh, to make changes and expand access to voting. But with that, we gotta take a quick break. When we come back, Robert, I wanna get your thoughts around this uh, piece. You're listening to Battleground Wisconsin, where Citizen Action can find steps Citizen Action, WRI.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're talking about uh, the, the election this fall and the, the, the health risks that COVID will continue uh, to face and what we ought to be doing uh, to change the way we uh, carry out our elections from increasing early voting to uh, mailing out absentee ballot applications. Robert, I want to get your thoughts about this uh, very important issue. Well, it's obvious that it risks people's public safety. There are disputes on methodology for what the impact of Wisconsin's in-person primary are, but if you get down to all the various disputes on methodology, Truth is, they're all the data. Why? Because we don't have a sufficient contact tracing system up. In other words, if we could trace every case back to uh, very clearly to the election or to somewhere else, then uh, then we'd know, right? But we do not. And so, and I know Governor Evers is trying to ramp it up, but the federal malfeasance on not ramping this up months and months ago with the much greater federal resources that that's part of the problem. But the second problem we have is that we've known this, the, the modern Republican Party, the one taken over by this malignant strain of right-wing conservatism, has been for voter disenfranchisement for quite a while as a tool, kind of Jim Crow-like, in the sense that they want to, make, want, to, want to kind of rig the electorate so it'll be more likely to have voters that will elect them and less likely to have voters that would vote against them. And this is just like photo ID, they have apparently made this judgment at the national level, and Donald Trump continues to make false statements about it, uh, that mail-in ballots will damage Trump's chances. And therefore, all of the folks who march in lock-stamped with the modern Republican Party will be blocking it. So I interpret the Election Commission debate here as simply the three Republicans are not going to budge because they've decided it's not in their interest to increase voter turnout. And as we saw with uh, the U.S. Supreme Court, the Wisconsin Supreme Court, and the Wisconsin State Legislature, all dominated by this kind of conservative, they didn't care whether they were risking people's life in order to try to win that state Supreme Court race in, uh, in, in the April 7th primary. And so 
We're going to be left in a situation where there will not be enough. There will not be federal money approved for increased mail balloting, where the election commission will block it. And we're going to be left with local action, most likely. We should push for both. We can't let them off the hook. And the public needs to know who's forcing them to vote in person if they end up voting in person in November. By the way, during an expected second surge, that if it's like the influenza of 1918, uh, will be worse than what we're facing right now, especially if we're still as much of a basket case in the country in our response uh, to the pandemic. Uh, it's going to be even worse then. It's going to affect the presidential election and make it an illegitimate election, arguably. But in Wisconsin, fortunately, for two reasons, uh, we actually have a way to make this better and to dramatically reduce in-person voting. And one is, is that localities can mail uh, absentee ballot applications to everyone, which will increase the amount of absentee ballots, even though there are all these hurdles put in by the voters enfranchisement of the Walker years that make it harder. Uh, the, the state election commission do the same, and the Democrats are trying to do. My prediction would be they'll never get any of the three Republicans for the reasons described above. But then the other thing is, is that uh, Walker tried to destroy early voting, and so did the lame duck session. And Citizen Action, one Wisconsin now, won a lawsuit, a federal lawsuit, and it was reestablished again by the same federal judge after the lame duck that reinstated early voting. But here's the thing. Localities can start up to three weeks early, but how many sites they put up is up to them, and it costs them money. So we've got to be pushing for every Look, major city in this and uh, and in this state and major you know population area to have extended early voting so people can socially distance and gradually vote at multiple locations. I mean, uh, Milwaukee shouldn't have three locations; should have thirty locations. I'm just throwing out a number. It should have a lot more, and they can also drop off absentee ballots, and they can also get them witnessed because if they're if they're uh, that's a barrier when you're trying to shelter in place or if you're self quarantining, which a lot of people will be doing because they uh, because of, of risk. And so there's a way to make it better. I don't think anything's coming from the legislature or election commission, though I think we should keep trying, or Congress. Uh, and, of course, President Trump will be doing everything he can to uh, get in the way, as he did again this week. But with that, I uh, want to spend the last few minutes of the show talking about something that we think is really important. We talk about it occasionally here on the show, and that is uh, the progressive media and alternative uh, outlets to information and news. It's something that is uh, really critical both nationally, but also uh, the decimation of local news gathering is a real problem. And so we've been highlighting, particularly in the print side or the digital side, right, uh, new outlets like the Wisconsin Examiner, Up North News, and we think they're doing uh, phenomenal jobs. They're two different kinds of models of of uh, new media, but both uh, uh, performing an outstanding function. Um, the other one is sort of that we want to talk about and I want to uh, spend some time on is the old standard radio. And it appears that liberal radio is making a resurgence and in particular um, resistance radio. We're, we're on here in Milwaukee and uh, our, our, our show on, on 1510 and and uh, we think that that's really important. And Robert, I know there's new information about uh, that that station in, in particular is doing well. Why don't you give us an update on that? Well, they're, they've expanded uh, to 
AM and FM. They said this is the stations in the Milwaukee and Madison area that Mike Crute owns and their flagship show that people know in, in progressive circles and the devil's advocates. And so they are continue to establish themselves though. I don't, they don't have nearly the advertising of like the big commercial stations or right-wing radio. So I think a lot of this is because Mike Cruz may be able to put his per, willing to put his personal money in, but he's gaining audience and he's gaining more advertisers. And so the, it is beginning to provide an alternative and the FM makes it much more accessible to more people. They were they, they were w- relatively weaker AM signals when you compare them to the middle of the dial kind of big stations. And so, and it's mostly local content. Tom Hartman's on it, but otherwise it is mostly shows produced in Milwaukee, like the Lingram show. Uh, there's, uh, there's a show first thing in the morning that is uh, uh, Sharita Jackson's show, which is Jesse Jackson's daughter. That's out of Chicago, but that's also very Milwaukee and Chicago-focused because she's close enough for that, and she's on Chicago Progressive Radio as well in partnership. And then you have, uh, well, Battleground Wisconsin is on this station, and and, and Mike Flynn is on this station. Uh, uh, there, then there are several other shows that are, that are local. And so that is, and Earl Ingram's a co-op member and really a, a stalwart African-American progressive voice in Milwaukee. So him having an outlet is very, very important. And we, we do a lot on Earl's show. And so that this is very important because of the dominance of Fox News and its precursor, which is still dominant in a lot of metro areas, right-wing radio. Claire, I know you you yourself are a, a mad consumer of alternative uh, media, mostly through podcasts and stuff, and uh, consider this a really important way to get information. In fact, you often, a lot of the information and stories you bring come from uh, different sources uh, than we might call your traditional uh, print or traditional media sources. Uh, that is absolutely accurate. Um, I... I think it's really important to um, try to get information from a ver- through a variety of different mediums. Um, for me, at least, um, it helps not only ensure that I'm getting different um, different perspectives and different takes on issues that I care about, and um, and getting access to more to more stories than just you know one outlet can cover. Um, but I think it's also um, it also helps me retain more information when I can consume it through different formats, right? So sometimes I'm I'm hearing a story through a podcast or I'm hearing a story through um, a radio station like the ones that Robert um, just read, um, and and that's you know because that's where my head is at that day, and sometimes I need to read something. Um, and the other thing I'd like to say, building off of what, what Robert was talking about, the expansion of, of uh, these progressive radio stations, that's really great, is I think we're also seeing a um, uh, an increase in the number of and quality of a lot of um, like modern print um, uh, papers. So. Uh, and and I, I'm <laughs> electronic print maybe is the way I'll put it. So um, being able to consume uh, written articles and traditional written reports uh, reporting, but through um, a newspaper like the Wisconsin Examiner or Up North News that has very high quality uh, reporters um, that are that are making wonderful stories covering um, the the state of Wisconsin. Um, so I've just been really impressed 
in general with a lot of um, newer investments in Wisconsin media, not just the radio stations, but also these these new um, online papers. I, th I think it's a it's a great time for local reporting. So we want to encourage our listeners to support those alternative sources, and in particular, uh, when Robert mentions Croup, uh, please, if you have the ability to advertise, uh, consider it. It is very important, and it's the only way a station like his stays on. So really want to encourage folks that, and we are, of course, grateful that we're able to hear on that radio station. But with that, we got to wrap up this week's Battleground Wisconsin. I uh, want to thank our producer, Brian Woolridge, who continues uh, to make sure that this podcast happens every week and, and that it actually sounds all right uh, in this time of COVID. We thank you, Brian. With that, we'll see you next week here at the Battleground Wisconsin.